times I've been picking a topic to talk about and kind of educate people a bit as to the context of where this music fits in. So today, that's what we're going to do. Um, I would imagine, how many have been in Orthodox Church before? Okay, but even if you have, if you're not Orthodox, to a lot of us here in America, I imagine it looks a little exotic, foreign, strange to you. And so, um, how many people know what the largest Christian congregation in the world is? What is it? Roman Catholic. How many Roman Catholics are there? Do you know? How many? Oh, in the world. There's about, it's well over a billion, maybe a billion four is what I've heard, 1.4 billion. And what is the second largest um, Christian congregation in the world? Anybody know? It's the Orthodox Church with about 300 million with, uh, with all of Russia and the Slavs and everything. So while in the United States, we the Orthodox may be a small and somewhat um, exotic minority in the world, we are a, a major player. And combined with the Roman Catholic Church, those are the two ancient churches um, form the vast majority of, of Christian uh, believers and a good percentage of the, uh, of the world. Um, so what I want to talk about today was a little bit about the origins of Christian worship and how those have continued in the Orthodox Church and, um, and then sing a little bit of the music for you. First of all, we know that uh, in the corporate worship of the church, that is when the Christian believers gathered together, as Christ instructed them to do, they worshiped in a liturgical fashion. That is to say, from very early on, they worshiped in a um, somewhat formalized, preset, prescribed way of worship. Um, and we have very early documents that were written right alongside the New Testament that tell us this. The apostolic constitutions and other documents written somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. And um, it is commonly thought uh, by scholars that the Gospel of John, for example, was written as late as 90 AD. So these are sources contemporary with the Gospels. You won't find a lot of description in, this is probably a little loud, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You won't probably won't find a lot of description of uh, liturgy in the Bible itself, but it was going on. Don't forget, at the end of Revelation, what does it say at the end of Revelation, Father? It says, if all, if everything that Christ said and did and taught were written down, the the world would not hold all the books. So there was much more going on that was that was able to be contained in the Scripture itself. Um, I thought that was at the end. Okay, well, John wrote Revelation 2, so there you go. Anyway, sorry about that. End of John. So, um, so um, these, these, these um, parabiblical texts describe the worship of the church for us. And as I said, it has always been a liturgical form of worship. Um, and in the church, early church, unlike today, they took their beliefs and their worship very seriously. Worship and belief were thought to be one and the same. There was a Latin phrase which was lex orandi, lex credendi, which means the rule of prayer is the rule of belief, or the rule of faith, meaning as you worship, so you believe. You know, today I think we're sort of like, 
I don't care what you believe in, just believe in something because there's so little faith. But back then, everyone believed. It was simply a matter of what you believe in, whether it be pagan or Judaism or any version of, uh, of, other, of other faith. So um, worshiping correctly was very important to the Christian church. So the text and the style and everything of worship was of paramount importance to them. They took it very, very seriously. And as you may recall, in the early Christian centuries, uh, Christian theology came in contact with Greek philosophy. Remember, the message of Christ was revealed to the fishermen in Galilee, but it encountered a very sophisticated, philosophically sophisticated Greco-Roman world, which it encountered. And so in the very, very early on, in the second century and beyond, um, the church fathers and other church figures began to think very seriously about what the truths revealed to the fishermen meant. What does it mean to say that God was, uh, that Christ was God and man? Very, very strange, unusual. Never happened before, never happened again. But the incarnation, for example, and began to think about this. So who was the person of Christ? As this developed, so too did certain church hymns that would reflect that truth. Because many heresies arose in the ancient church, varying beliefs, which the church had to combat. The other, the other big topic was, what does it mean to have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This plurality in unity, the Holy Trinity. So you had various hymns written. And for example, one of those was written by the Emperor Justinian himself. It's it. We sing it in every liturgy. Only begotten Son of God. I have the text here somewhere. Let's see. It's a very theological hymn. It says, Only begotten Son of God, immortal... Only begotten Son and immortal Word of God, who are for our salvation did will to, be in, to become incarnate of the holy Theotokos, Mother of God and ever-Virgin Mary, who without change became man, was crucified, O Christ our God, trampling down death by death, who are one of the Holy Trinity, glorified with the Father and the Spirit, save us. It's a very theological text. You can see in there, there are very specific injunctions that were added to combat certain other varying beliefs and heresies that were circulating at the time. And the Emperor Justinian then commanded this hymn to be sung throughout all the churches. See, there was a great belief in unity of faith and in unity of worship. And you will find this throughout the Orthodox world even today. Go to any Orthodox church on a Sunday morning, whether it be in Russia, Greece, Serbia, the Middle East. And by the way, you should know that the entire Middle East was Christian before the Muslims came. Um, and there is still a remnant of Christianity there. Unfortunately, it is heavily persecuted, particularly in the last hundred years or so, and rapidly shrinking. But they were all Orthodox Christians because that was the division in the East was the Orthodox Church in the West, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. So by this, I'm just trying to emphasize to you how important, how serious the church took its worship and how serious in the Orthodox Church we still take our worship. It is a prescribed worship. The hymns, the texts of the hymns are very carefully selected. They are very sober. They are full of joy as well. But you just don't take any nice little Jesus song, and I don't mean to be demeaning when I say that, and get inserted on a Sunday. It's not done. We use the same texts that have been used for centuries and millennia. So uh, in the Orthodox Church, the form of worship will be, is that ancient. Um, the other thing that I uh, 
wanted to emphasize this year is the roots of our worship. And I say our worship, I mean in the traditional church, meaning the Catholic church and the Orthodox church. And those meaning the common roots of all Christian worship. The roots were from the Jewish tradition. Uh, Initially, when the Jews built the temple in Jerusalem, they had temple sacrifice, ritualistic sacrifice. That was their form of worship. There was a priesthood set apart, and believers would bring various animals of various types, quality, sizes, uh, with respect to their own means. The more more means that you were, you brought a a larger and a finer animal. And the priests would sacrifice. And they had special drains built from the temple to do away with all the blood. In fact, there were sacrifices going on all day. This was accompanied by songs and hymns of praise, but lots of instruments, trumpets, the shofar, the big ram's horn, lots of, of, of pageantry and show. That was temple worship. The pagans, they didn't worship a whole lot differently either. There was also sacrifice going on in the temples. And a lot of, uh, it was different. Don't get me wrong with that. It was different. But they still had sacrifice and lots of pageantry. Now when the Babylonians came and conquered the Israelites, the southern, the northern kingdom, I think it was, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem fell anyway, they destroyed the temple and carried the Israelites off into captivity. So now we have the Jews in captivity. Their temple is destroyed. And the temple was the only place where the priesthood could sacrifice. So we had no more sacrifices. And Judaism went through, it was becoming Judaism, went through, went through a crisis. How do we worship? They, and they formed what they call the synagogue, which we're familiar with today. Synagogue is a Greek word. Synagogi from avo and sin, which means to come together, gather together. It is the assembly of the believers. Its worship is very, very different from the temple. And as I begin to describe its worship to you, I think you will see immediately how Christian worship, even in Protestant churches today, Catholic, Orthodox, resembles that. That is its parent. In synagogue worship, um, you had a series of prayers, hymn singing, primarily from the Psalms, Um, scripture readings and exposition of scripture, meaning sermons or talking about it. That was an entirely new form of worship. It was not, that did not exist in the temple, this didactic element, nor did it exist in pagan worship. It was, it was entirely new. Uh, there was a certain informality as well to the synagogue. Uh, you had the, the rising of the rabbinic class. The priesthood was almost done with. When they went back to Jerusalem and came again, they built the second temple so the priesthood had its last hurrah, if you will, and sacrifice. And when finally the emperor Tiberius in 70 AD destroyed the temple in Jerusalem for good, there was no more animal sacrifice, no more ritualistic priesthood to this very day. And so the Jews have since worshipped in synagogues. Now the early Christians were all Jews. And they continued in their Judaism. In fact, Christ, it's in the Bible, uh, was preaching in the synagogues and in the temple. He could, because in the synagogue, one, anyone could get up, not anyone necessarily, but would get up and could speak on the scripture passage and preach, and Christ did. And we know this from the scripture. Um, the early Jewish Christians continued to go to the synagogues and to the temple. 
until such time, actually, as there became a, a few too many of them, and they became a threat to the established rabbinic tradition, and then they were no longer welcome. But by that time, there were enough Gentile converts to Christianity that did not have Jewish roots that the two uh, faiths really separated from each other. Okay? Now, what, was the, what were the characteristics of the synagogue worship that, we ma- that were maintained in the Christian church for 1,500 years? But in the West, it slowly moved away from, in certain respects, but in the East, we retained. First of all, as a, in, the, in, the, in the temple worship, as I said, they had lots of instruments. You can read this throughout the Old Testament. It describes temple worship and all the instruments they used. There were lyres, there was trumpets, there were drums, zithers, and many other instruments. In the synagogue, there were no instruments. It was only the human voice. And as opposed to big, elaborate song settings, there was chant. And it was monophonic chant. Monophonic means one melodic line. It wasn't harmonized. There weren't multiple melodies on top of each other. That did not enter into uh, Christian worship until uh, Renaissance time, when in the West polyphony was introduced. And we have um, Scarlatti and uh, <clears throat> Palestrina, which saved, saved polyphony of the West because the, the bishops of the Catholic Church initially forbade polyphony. It was too theatrical, they felt, because before that they had chant, we call Gregorian chant. And um, they felt it was a bit too theatrical, a bit too elaborate, that it, it obscured the words. It made too much, too much of the music and not enough of the words, and so the text was lost. Uh, and and, um, and um, Palestrina is credited with saving polyphony in the West. I'm a little bit off topic, but just to describe that for you. Um, and he simplified the, mel- uh, the, um, the harmonies, the polyphony. He emphasized the text. He adhered a little more strictly to the church modes, and he was able to uh, save polyphony in the West. Since then, polyphony has gone off in a thousand directions so that the modern worship in the West is very different from that. In the East, we continue with the chant, with monophonic chant, plain chant. Now, in the synagogue, you had antiphonal singing. You had back and forth choirs on either side. That was also a characteristic of ancient Greek theater, but I don't believe that was the predecessor for the Christian church. I think it was from the synagogue. And so this gave variety to the service. And in in a country like Greece today, you'll have right and left choirs. Russia, the same thing. You won't see a lot of that here. If you come to Orthodox Church here in North America, our our worship style is a little bit unique and, dare I say, untraditional for the Orthodox Church because it has adapted multiple elements of worship on this continent, sort of in imitation of our Protestant brethren, uh, in a way to, I don't know, to adapt themselves. But throughout the rest of the world, it's still done this way. So you have antiphonal singing. Um, how would that be? You would sing a psalm, for example, um, and one side would sing one verse, one side would sing the next verse. And it would go back and forth. Also in the synagogue, you had the responsorial style, which was continued both in the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Episcopalian Church has it, the Lutherans may have it to a bit. And that is where either the priest or a leader, congregational leader, sings a verse or gives an, an, uh, an exclamation and the congregation responds or sings a hymn of refrain, 
or something like that. So, for example, um, um, we have, as we, go, as we do the liturgy, I can just show you. The liturgy here begins, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the people say, Amen. Amen. That's the simplest and the shortest response. Amen, it's a, it's a Hebrew. It means so be it. So be it. The people give their assent. You see, the word liturgy, liturgia, comes from two Greek words, laos, meaning the people, and laos, we have like the word laity in English, comes from laos, and ergo, ergo means work, we have ergonomics, ergometer, right? So laos, ergo, liturgia, the work of the people. It's the people and the leader in combination who form the Christian body and who do the worship together. So the people have to assent, you see. Another common response, a simple one, is Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. And you'll hear that, they even say Kyrie eleison in the Latin church. And they also say Christe eleison, Christ have mercy. And so the priest will then comes out and gives a series of invocations um, for the peace of the world and for, what is it? Grace from above, let us pray to the Lord. And the people say, Kyrie eleison, responds the choir. And that's how we have it. Then you come along to the first set of what's called antiphons. And there the leader will sing a psalm verse, and the people will respond. So we have the very first one in the liturgy. Let's see if I can find it here. And I will sing it to you in the way we do in the Byzantine style. We'll explain a little about that later. Ευλογή ψυχή μου τον Κύριον και πάντα τα εντός μου το όνομα το Αγίον αυτού. That's a psalm verse that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And the people sing, Τες πρεσβείες της Θεοτόκους ότερ σώσον ημάς Through the intercessions of the Θεοτόκος, Savior, save us. The first is done in a recitative style. It's almost one step up from talking. Bless the Lord of my soul. It's not a song. You see, every syllable, every word, the meter may change uh, with respect to the accentuation of the words. A song has a more consistent meter, 4-4, 3-4, whatever it may be. In recitative and in chant, the meter is constantly changing. The chant steps one step away from recitative towards the song, but not quite there yet. So um, that is that rest called the responsorial style. You'll have the right sides begin, the left side, the right side, the left side, in the antiphonal approach, just as was done in the synagogue. Um, and then finally we have the didactic part, the scripture readings. In the Orthodox Church today we have an old, uh, we have epistle reading and a gospel reading. And the priest may give a sermon on either one of those or something else of his choosing. More traditionally, he will expound on the gospel reading, sometimes the epistle reading. The, in the Catholic Church, they have an Old Testament reading as well. Uh, and that practice has not been maintained in the Orthodox Church, except in certain services in Vespers, where we'll read, and, in the, and, in, and of course in, the, um, in other services, we'll read from the Old Testament. Um, let's see... So, um, why chant then? The rabbis of the, uh, the Jew in the, in the, in, when the synagogue was first being formed felt that 
it was the most, it was more somber, it was more appropriate for their worship in the synagogue, you see, because the text was expounded. Also, they felt that since they were in exile in Babylon, um, that it was improper for them to have great festivals of, you know, joyous pageantry as such. In the Christian church, we find ourselves in an intermediate position. We do have the good news, the redemption of the world through the salvific work of Jesus Christ and the inauguration, as it were, of the kingdom of heaven, and yet the kingdom has not been fully realized. So we both sort of have one foot in the joy of the kingdom and one foot on this earth and its imperfections and its struggle. So therefore, while there are many joyous hymns, we still worship and live in a more somber style because each of us both individually and as in a corporate body, are still working out our salvation and struggling against the powers that prevail in this world. That's the, the whole idea of that. Also in the Christian church, the fathers said that um, since God became man in Christ, the divine incarnation, that the human voice now becomes sanctified, as does the human body, and that is the only appropriate instrument with which to worship God. If you think about it, it makes sense because instruments themselves, instrumental music, is a purely abstract form. It's an abstraction. It's not just like, just like abstract painting. You hear certain keys, certain modes, say a minor or whatever, and you say, that sounds sad and that sounds happy. That's about as far as you can get with it. Otherwise, instrumental music really is, is purely abstract. Here we're involved in what is called um, rational worship. One of the hymns of the church says, we offer to thee an evening hymn and rational worship as we praise God with our hearts but also our minds. And so therefore it is the text, the word of God, which we promote in the church. So with that as a background, I wanted to sing a few other pieces for you. Um, One of the most ancient hymns of the church is um, the Fos Ilaron, which is a hymn which means, O gladsome light. It is sung at Vespers. You see, the other services of the church all fit into the, to the daily schedule of literally the passage of the sun, the night, and the day. The reckoning of a day in the Orthodox Church is, again, exactly as it is in the Jewish faith. That is to say, from Genesis. Genesis says, and God made what first? Day or night? Remember? remember? Genesis says, and God made night, and he made day. Day one. So, to the Jews, when does the Sabbath begin? Who knows? Sundown Sundown when? Friday night. Exactly. And And in the Christian church, the next day liturgically begins with sundown the night before. This, this, this cycle of services begins with the Vesper service, which is the evening service, as the sun is setting and they are lighting the lamps. Because in the ancient world, you didn't have light switches to turn on. They had to light oil lamps. And so in the middle of the Vespers, the priest comes out, has a, um, a procession, and we sing this song, O glad some light, and the lamps are lit and the church becomes brighter. You see, the beautiful thing is the entire church cycle begins with Psalm 103, which is a little summary, if you will, of Genesis. Because as the world is 
Now the sun's going down, and imagine you're living in the ancient world. There are no street lights, there are no lights outside, just the stars, occasionally a full moon, but when there's no full moon, imagine how dark it is. Darkness really was deeply felt by the ancient people. Just like if you've ever been camping, you feel the darkness very profoundly. And every shadow and every sound can you got to be careful. You don't know. If you're, if you're camping these days, is that a bear? Go to the North Georgia mountains. There are bears, believe me. Um, but in the ancient world, you never know. Is that an intruder, a bad guy? What is it? A darkness is something to be feared. And who is the light of the world? Christ says, okay? So we begin the cycle of the services with, with this summary of Genesis as darkness approaches. And there are prayer services throughout the night at various times at midnight office, then in the morning service. And the morning service is called the matins in Latin and, and orthros in, in English and Greek, sorry. And at the, end of, at the end of the matin service, right before the liturgy starts, if you ever go to a monastery, you'll experience this. As I remember very well when I did it for the first time when I was 25 years old in Greece, and there's a little dome with little slits, the only windows. And so at the end of the matin service, we sing the doxology, which begins... Glory to thee who has shown us the light. Doxa si to dixan dito fos, doxa en ipsis tis theo, ke pigis irini en anthropis evdokia. Glory to thee who has shown us the light, glory in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. Plagal of fourth mode. So this is the way, it's a very triumphant hymn. So here I was, Malnathos, we, they knock, you know, they, they sound the thing to get out of your, to wake up, and you go into the church, four o'clock in the morning, little monks sitting there with a candle, reading the Psalms. They do the matin service, it's in the dark, and the sun is slowly coming out. And when they got to that point, the priest is using incense. By the way, they used incense in the synagogues too, very ancient practice. And, through, and these clouds of incense, and they're singing this hymn, and these rays of sunlight are coming through. And you can see them piercing in the, through the clouds, like you can literally see rays of light. And I hadn't read any of this stuff. Somewhere in my gut, you feel it. You go, my gosh, listen to that. And what's the very next thing we do? Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, the divine liturgy, in which the Eucharist is celebrated. Christ coming in, the light of the world. You see, and the day dawns, and we come out into a bright world, you see. So that the cycle of the services in both West and East, Catholic and Orthodox churches, was intimately tied in to the cycle of nature, you see, and the sun and everything. It's really a magnificent tapestry. A lot more to talk about there. I won't go more into that. Anyway, oh, gladsome light of the holy glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. Now we have come to the setting of the sun and beheld the light of evening. What's the light of evening? That's the light, the oil lamp they're lighting. We praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian formula. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a, a great controversy. For example, as I said earlier, in the Middle East, um, they were Christian, but the Muslims came in greater numbers and in greater strength and conquered them, and so they were a minority. And so we invoke the Trinity very frequently in the Orthodox Church in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The priests of the Middle East, the Arabic priests, they always say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, as a corrective. 
So the Muslims were accusing them of being polytheists. But that's what it does. So he says, For it is right at all times to worship thee with voices of praise, O Son of God and giver of life. Therefore all the world glorifies thee. And this hymn is said by St. Basil the Great in the 4th century, that is the 300s. He calls it already an ancient hymn of the church. It is the oldest complete hymn of the Christian church, this hymn. And it goes like this. Let me just um, get some water here. same Greek we use in the Orthodox Church today in Greece. So that hasn't changed one bit. When they read scripture in the church in Greece, they read the original Koine Greek. And uh, that's what that is. That's the Foschladon, another ancient hymn of the church. Again, St. Basil, I think, or another father comments on it very early and says it's an ancient hymn. No one knows who wrote it. In fact, Foschladon may, may have pagan roots. Um, but they changed it, obviously. They injected Jesus Christ, the Trinitarian formula. That's how ancient they are. And the, next, the other one is called the Trisayon, the Thrice Holy Hymn. Holy God, holy, mighty, holy, immortal. Meaning, holy is God, holy and mighty, holy, immortal. Aios Otheos, Aios Ischiros, Aios Athanatos. And we sing that at every liturgy. Let's see if we can find a good one here. Yes. The Aios you're hearing is a very short way of doing psalmody. The beautiful thing about chant is it can be adapted multiple ways um, without having to write all new compositions. So, but the, there are set compositions, but you can also chant, chant. If you know the modes, that's another whole topic, what modes are. Anyone who has musical training 
will certainly have heard of the Dorian, uh, Lydian, Mixolydian, all those ancient modes. Well, we have the ecclesiastical modes in the uh, Orthodox Church as well. And you can chant any text. So, for example, before I expand on Isotheos, I'll show you how that works. Um, let's say we want to sing the national anthem of the United States, okay? And you pick a mode. What mode, Father? Plague of second. Plague of second. Plague of second mode has a scale that says. <clears throat> Sounds very Middle Eastern to your ears. It is, I guess, but it's it's one of the first modes. So we'd say. Give me another one. What other mode would you like to hear it in? First. First mode. Ananas. Oh, that's, that's in a diatonic scale. It's a minor scale. You'd call it in English. It's a minor scale. So we'd say. Can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Who's brought stripes and bright stars? And you can go on like that. We can sing anything. Now, why is that important? Because uh, in Christian worship, there developed a whole system of feast days where we had every day was given over to a certain saint. Okay? Now, the worship of Christ and the Eucharist always first. Okay, and there, but beside that, there would be hymns sung for various saints or also various events in the life of Christ. August the 6th, the Transfiguration. December 25th, the birth of Christ, etc., etc., etc. So these books are in a set of books called the Munologia, which are 12 volumes, one folio for every month. And there's tons and tons of hymns. If you tried to set them all to music, first off, you would make it rigid and fix it. They would go from here to there. But instead, it's set in a given mode. So you don't have to have specific music necessarily written. You know how to sing modally. You can just sing it. It's a magnificent, flexible, beautiful thing, which provides lots of variation. So now, let's go back here. We said, And then we can also sing that as an expanded melody. And they do this in great cathedrals of Greece. So we have... I'll take it up a little spread out the melody, you see. This is a, a big characteristic of Byzantine chant is the expansion of the melody. Um, and so we have, we can sing short things, you know, like we did um, before. 
Aios or theos, one syllable, one, one syllable, one note. We can do two and three notes per syllable, or we can stretch it out where we've got 20 notes per syllable. So, for example, in the, we have cherubic hymns, which is, which is uh, called a papadic melody, when the priest is doing prayers, doing the business, if you will, of preparing the elements, the bread and the wine, for their presentation before they become consecrated into the blood and body of Christ. The priest has a lot of things he does, and so prepare. And so the choir or the chanter takes a certain melody and, and sings it in a really expanded form. And this melody says, um, this hymn says, <clears throat> we who represent the cherubim, let me find it. We who mystically represent the cherubim sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-giving trinity. Let us set aside all the cares of life that we may receive the king of all. Don't forget, when you come into a church, the idea is that one leaves the world behind. That's why most Orthodox churches are built up a little bit higher, and there are steps to come in, so that you ascend, if you will. It gives you a, we're, very, we're human beings after all. We live in a three-dimensional world made of flesh and blood. We are not, you know, the, or, the Christian church is not a dualistic church. It doesn't believe material is bad spiritual is good. How could it be if God himself took our flesh? Then he sanctifies the world, you see. So um, you step up to, to let the world be, be behind. And so um, um, uh, here's it saying, let us, let us forget about all that because we are about to receive Christ himself as the Eucharist is about to be celebrated. So in this hymn, it would, uh, very expanded melody. So first mode would sound something like this. Amen. Ita. So that's how, and the hymn goes on like that. And it takes a while, so the priest can do his thing, you see. And um, that's called melismatic singing, where you expand the melody and you have a lot of ups and downs. You see, it's also a way of looking at singing horizontally as opposed to singing vertically. Vertical singing would be, how many of you can read music? Okay, well, if you see a chord, what does a chord look like when you write it down? It's a bunch of notes on top of each other. Several notes sounded at the same time. So if you have a series of, of harmonic progressions like that, it's, you know, it's kind of like singing vertically. This is horizontal singing. So as opposed to embellishing the melody with harmony, we embellish it with um, um, ornaments and ornamentation of the melodic line, little wiggles in the voice and things like that, which give it life and give it movement, you see, and resolution. Um, so that's, that's pretty much what I had to say. Anybody had any questions about that? Yes, sir. Uh, 
in Roman tradition, there are six, seven uh, times during the day in prayer uh, rituals are constructed. Mm -hmm. Bowers, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So how is that organized? Uh, in the East? In the East. Exactly the same. The, 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 the site, you have to understand, the cycle of worship developed in the Eastern monasteries and then went to the West. St. Benedict, these are monastic things. The, um, the, 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 the hour, see, first off, the, the, um, oh, what, what I neglected to tell you, I, I meant to say one thing, let me, let me come back to a second. The liturgy itself, the Mass, the Eucharist, is separate from these other things. The other things are called the, the liturgy of the hours, they're called. And they developed in monasteries because the monks prayed around the clock. St. Paul says somewhere, Adialiptos prosefieste, pray without ceasing. So the monks accomplished this by setting hours throughout the day. Now, what I meant to tell you was, the early, the early Jewish Christians were celebrating the Sabbath in their, in, their, in their congregation, but they also had an additional injunction from Christ, which was, do this in remembrance of me, do the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So um, very soon they began to do that on Sunday. But they still kept the Sabbath. So for example, in the Catholic Christian countries and Orthodox Christian countries, look at the language. Saturday, what is the, what is the English word Saturday? Is that, it gives a hint as to what that day was dedicated to. Anybody know? Saturn, Saturn the god Saturn. And Sunday, S-U-N? To the sun, the star in the sky. How do you say Saturday in Greek? Sabato, Sabbath. How do you say Saturday in Spanish? Sabato, it's the Sabbath. So in these early Christianized countries at one time, clearly, um, they remain the Sabbath. How do you say Sunday in Greek? Kiriaki, from Kyrios, the Lord's Day. Or in Spanish? Domingo, the Lord's Day again. So this, and you know this, we have this very early on. In 74 AD, there's a letter, I forget his name, Makarios wrote a letter to somebody, and he says, on the Lord's Day, we do this. In 90 AD, the Apostolic Constitutions, it, it gives prescriptions exactly. On the Lord's Day, we will celebrate the Eucharist, you see. So what happened was then, after, as more Gentile Christians came in, the Sabbath celebration began to be not as important, and they brought these, this, I meant to tell you this earlier, they brought these two together. The first part of the liturgy, what we call the liturgy of the word, was responsorial, antiphonal, singing of psalms, scripture readings, and sermon. The second half of the liturgy is the Eucharist, you see. So the two aspects of the worship become united in that. Now that's the liturgy, the Mass, the Eucharist. The monasteries wanted more. They were, they were celebrating around the clock. And the liturgy of the hours works like this. When the sun sets, you have the Vespers. Then the monks leave the church and they go en masse into the refectory, the trapeza, and they eat. Okay? And then they all come back into the church where they read the compline. This is, I'll, I'll describe for you the Orthodox. The Catholic is not that much different at all. They read the compline, which in Greek is called the apodipno. Apodipno, from the meal, having come from the meal. And they read prayers for sleep. Because after the compline, which would end about 8 o'clock or 8.30, they go and they sleep for a few hours. And then they, the, next, the next cycle, next service cycle is the Mesoniction, which is the midnight office. And you would rise at midnight. And then they have the first hour, 
These, these are the ancient hours. The Romans had these hours. The Jews had these hours. And the, and, the, and, the, and the New Testament says that. At the ninth hour, this happened. So you have the first hour, which I believe uh, is 3 a.m. prime. Is that 3 a.m.? Something like that. Then you have the matins. You have the liturgy. Then you have like the sixth hour is noon. Isn't that right? And the ninth hour, nons as they call it, is about... Three o'clock or four o'clock, and, and, and that's right. Then after that, you have Vesper. So that's the, it's the same cycle exactly almost. There are slight variations, but roughly the same. That's, that's, that's the explanation of that, yeah. Other questions? Comments? Anything else, Father, that you'd like? Well, that's a great education. Very nice. Thanks. Anybody has a question? I'm here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.